Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation about IP focusing on the issues, challenges and stories relevant to those who create and manage intellectual property. In series two, we continue to discuss best practices for monetizing and protecting IP and consider how innovators and businesses may need to adapt to new working practices in the post-COVID-19 world. Updated examination guidelines published by the EPO in March 2021 include stricter requirements for making a patent description consistent with amended claims. This might seem straightforward, but this new approach may have a knock-on effect in subsequent patent disputes. Here to discuss the guideline changes are Appleyard Lee's patent attorneys, Bobby Smithson and Andy McKinley. Bobby is a chemist who works closely with in-house patent departments of large companies in the UK and overseas. Andy holds a PhD in computing and advises across a broad range of software, electronic and mechanical subject matter. And now over to Bobby and Andy. Thanks for that, Charlie. Yeah, these rule changes come round quite often and often they don't change very much they just sort of tinker around the edges this time there's they've raised a a potential problem or a potential change which might raise problems depending on how we we react to it and andy and i've been talking about this and had some thoughts so andy the uh the changes to what we're supposed to do to the description of pond grant could lead to some serious problems yeah for sure i think it's I think you're right in saying that these these guideline changes are regular and often the, the stuff in there that's quite helpful, you know, some helpful guidance as to how to argue against particular problems or, or that sort of thing. But this one in particular seems like it's going to be not a headache, but a bit of uh, a bit of a burden for for applicants. The sort of easiest way to explain it probably is the the example that's given in the guidelines. So it's all about when you get to the I suppose the end of the patent prosecution process and you have settled on a, a set of claims that look like they're, they're going to be allowed by the, the EPO, then you need to make sure that the description of the patent application is consistent with those amended claims. And I think what often happens uh, is that you will narrow your claims somehow to exclude something that was present in the application that you filed. So the example given in the guidelines is that You've got a patent application that's to a vehicle, say, and at the outset, your your application covers the possibility that the vehicle has a an electric motor and it has a combustion engine, and then somewhere down the line, for whatever reason, a bit of a bit of prior art turns up that you need to amend to get around. You restrict it to the electric motor in claim one. So then you've got this problem where the bit of the patent that defines the broader scope of the invention says it has to have an electric motor. But that your description includes these these other embodiments that don't necessarily have that electric motor. I mean, that is a nice a nice easy way to look at it, isn't it? I guess the changes that they're requiring, from my understanding of it, is that they the examiners are going to be much more keen on forcing amendment of the description prior to you know finally accepting and, and moving the, the the patent through to grant. And it seems that there's going to be two ways that they can do that, and one is simply requiring deletion of those features which are no longer covered by the claims or the second is that they will um you know require a a a positive means of of delimiting it so in other words sort of literally putting something in there saying you know the following embodiment does not form part of the invention and both of those alternatives lead to problems or can lead to significant problems you know if you if you start deleting lots of paragraphs from your text or or, or embodiments from your text 
You can end up with problems whereby the patent is not sufficiently disclosed, for example. So under Article 83 of the EPC, you no longer have a, a patent which is sufficiently disclosed to enable a, a person skilled in the art to carry it out. You could also end up, by deleting subject matter, you can end up extending subject matter, and that sort of sounds a bit oxymoronic. So the alternative is to you know, mark it as, no, this particular embodiment is not does not form part of the invention. And then that, that lead can lead to another problem of, you know, post-grant, especially with regards to national law when it comes to the determination of equivalence and things like that. So from an equivalence point of view, you're, you're possibly better off just completely deleting it rather than saying, well, it does not form part of the invention. Whereas from an Article 83 sufficiency point of view, you're potentially better off leaving it in but saying it's not part of the invention. And that that can really lead you in a, in a bit of a squeeze as to how to correctly deal with that issue. I think from our point of view, we sort of deal with this a little bit quite a lot at opposition anyway. So you, you get to the end of the opposition hearing and you've you've often arrived at a, a different set of claims that have been accepted by the opposition division. Um, and the last step is to then agree on, on what amendments should be made to the specification. And I think at that stage, because it's a, a, an inter-parties proceeding, you certainly have one eye on interpretation of claims post-grant and you are thinking about what can be left in and what can be taken out in order to, well, depending on which side you're representing, restrict the claims accordingly or keep them as broad as you possibly can, notwithstanding that they've just been restricted by the opposition division. And having that as an inter-parties discussion and a process whereby it is it is decided upon having heard both parties' submissions, you know, that can be quite a long part of the opposition, but it, it's different to a, an ex parte proceedings with an examiner where the examiner simply has the, the job of some guidelines of, well, delete it or just say it's not part of the invention because actually the examiner isn't really too concerned with any post-grant issues in terms of equivalence, et cetera. Um, that, that puts a different spin on it, really. Yeah, well, I think as well, it's the change here is that the interpretation's more strict. You know, there's always been a requirement for having the claims agree with the description, but you saw and you do see up until now a, a wide sort of variety of ways of making that happen procedurally. And, and I sort of mean that on both sides. You would find examiners who are sticklers for this. You would find examiners who just don't care. Uh, you'll find that you could get away with you know, just adding a sentence to, to say that the invention is as defined in the claims or something like that and not have to go through deleting loads of stuff or adding in sentences to say that particular embodiments weren't part of the claims. There was this whole toolbox of things that you could do previously that meant that you didn't have to get drawn into specifically deleting bits of the description or specifically saying that a particular embodiment is or isn't within the the scope of the claims so I think often it was something that got left until right at the end and I know in exam OP hearings I've been in the the fun situation of thinking that you're over the line having got some claims agreed to and then the examiner saying well how long do you need to sort out this description Mr McKinley and you sort of look at it and you're just like oh god there's uh you know I need to go through and, and change all these things and then sort of saying well can I just get away with putting in this sentence saying that the you know the invention is as defined in the claims or something like that and then because you feel like you've effectively got to the end you've got over the line they're happy with the claims that you sort of 
get a bit of latitude to to do those things. So yeah, the change now is that it is going to be, you know, it's there in black and white in the guidelines, it's going to be insisted upon. And our understanding is that the EPO examiners have been, you know, had some training and been briefed to do this, to do this as a matter of course and, and insist upon it. I wonder if one of the issues that I often see, because I do a reasonable amount of post-grant opposition work, is that a number of claims end up going through to grant where you essentially have some clarity issues in the claims. And while this doesn't really address that, I do wonder if there's a, a general sort of feeling that things need to be tidied up much more during examination so that there, are, there aren't such big holes during opposition. If, if that's what this is intended to do, I think it misses the mark because really, as I say, I think the issue we often find is that the claims are, have clarity issues. You know, this, this, this doesn't really help that. If anything, it could, it could push it the other way. But it's an interesting question. I, I think in general, if the idea is to try and increase the rigour of examination so that we have fewer problems post-grant, then that's a good idea. And as we've said, it can introduce some other some other issues. So, I, I, you know, it's difficult without sort of giving specific examples off the top of your head, but you can envisage examples where this will lead to a broadening of, of claim scope, you know, a broadening in terms of sort of interpretation under Article 69 rather than introducing features which are not which are not there. But if you have a if you file a patent application with a particular set of claims and you delete something from your specification, you could argue that those features in the claims post grant are broader because that you know they can be interpreted fairly to include something broader than the thing that's been deleted, and you know that's that's a significant issue. There's an argument that you can reintroduce that post grant, although you know the EPO have this idea about cutoff in terms of the date of grant being the, the cutoff date or, or cutoff for subject matter, and that's dealt with in opposition proceedings by looking really again at Article One Two Three Three. As long as you know you can reintroduce things from the specification as filed post grant, as long as it doesn't offend Article One Two Three Three and extend subject matter, but that's really something that's quite difficult to interpret and difficult to argue, because you can then you really are looking at the interpretation of the claim under Article Sixty Nine and how you would interpret the feature of a claim using the description and how that changes by reintroducing features of the description and would that you know in any sort of reasonable argument be made broader. And you just end up in a real sort of hornet's nest, from what I can tell. The few times I've had anything to do with that kind of amendment can be really very tricky to to navigate. So that that's obviously a, a, a problem. Yeah. To return to the uh, sort of vehicle, electric motor, combustion engines, you could imagine that you've got a pattern application where you're describing embodiment one of your vehicle and you've got a, an electric motor and you say something about the the bracket that is mounted on, say, and that that sort of discussion of what the mounting bracket is imparts kind of a, a special meaning on on that particular feature. So, you know, mounting bracket within the scope of this disclosure is X, Y, Z. And then later on, you've got your discussion of the combustion engine and it just refers to it having a mounting bracket. If you then delete that first embodiment where there's all the, the sort of chat about what exactly it means for something to be a mounting bracket, then... You know, perhaps you've you've changed what mounting bracket means in the in the claim then because you've sort of deleted a discussion of some of the specific features it might have. I think that's 
that's the best that I could come up with off the top of my head as to as to an obvious way of of how this might shake out. But it certainly seems to me that if if one was not already looking at the amendments made to the description when you're thinking about filing an opposition or thinking about it again on appeal from a, an opposition division decision, then you really, really should be because it seems more likely that we'll get more of these deletions, more of these, you know, people tripping themselves up to fulfil these these new requirements in the guidelines and potentially causing problems. Yeah. Oh, well, and, and the problems don't stop there, do they? You know, I think that's probably that example you've just given, actually, which, which is sort of has some corollary to a case that was reported recently from the UK High Court looking at at equivalence and really using the de- this using the description to determine equivalence, which is something that the UK courts have shied away from, but using the description to, to look at equivalence. And in, in that case, Illumina case, there was a question as to what a term in, in the in the description meant. And given your example, you know, if you have if it just says bracket, for example, that would be given a broad interpretation in the claims, and then you look in the specification as granted. And you've deleted your specific example of mounting brackets. And so actually you're given a broad interpretation. Whereas I think if you'd left the first bit in of the specific interpretation, shall we say, um, then it would have been given a, a different interpretation or a narrow interpretation under this this way of looking at things uh, in, in this recent decision. The worry is that the converse is also true, that you you have to sort of say, well, this does not form part of the invention for one of your embodiments. And in the chemical fields that, that I operate in, that, that often happens. You know, you sort of, you start with 55 examples, say, and, um, you know, maybe you have a range in there of a particular ingredient, which is, you know, starts off at 20 to 50%. And then during prosecution, for whatever reason, you've amended that and maybe amended a few other things to be, you know, 25 to 40% or something. And for whatever reason, some of your examples no longer fall within the scope. If you then sort of positively acknowledge that they are no longer within the scope of the invention because the EPO forced you to do that, then when you're looking at equivalence, there's going to be a very sort of positive, no, they're not, you know, if you look at this sort of, the third Octavius question on infringement, would a, would a person skilled in the art consider strict literal compliance? And you would argue that that demonstrates that a clear intention by the patentee that the, the, the feature is limiting and therefore not included within the scope. I mean, that's not out of kilter with general German jurisprudence, I think, which is that if it's disclosed in the patent but not claimed, then it should not be considered to be covered by the claims. So maybe that's the direction we're going in, but it's certainly not something that we've looked looked at in the UK with the doctrine of equivalence being quite new in our uh, jurisprudence as in the way that it is at the moment. And these are all sort of problems or, or issues that are going to be ironed out in the next 10 years. And during those 10 years, we as European practitioners have been amending these um, patents you know, but as told by the examiner, and uh, the one that I have to do this week might in 10 years come before a court, and I've got to think about how that's going to look in 10 years' time. It's a bit of a crystal ball gazer. Yeah, it's all tricky, isn't it, in the sense that there's no easy answers, no no straightforward way of dealing with this, no sort of one-size-fits-all. I was trying to think as well about, you know, what you would do drafting-wise to make this easier, or whether we would just you know, say that the preference is to try and delete things because we don't want those those statements in there that says that something isn't part of the invention. But a lot of times it's not it's not as straightforward as there is embodiment A and embodiment B 
and what you know embodiment A has ended up the subjective claim one. So we just delete embodiment B. You know, you have much more complex situations than that in pattern applications where features are present in some guise or another. And from a sort of added matter perspective, we've come to a point where specs are drafted often in a way that sort of runs embodiments together so that you don't end up in a position where you want to pick a feature from a particular embodiment and then find out that you've got to take all the rest of that embodiment with it. You want to kind of draft in a way that shows that this feature can can tie into all the rest of the embodiments. So we don't necessarily have that nice segmentation in a pattern application that makes it straightforward. So I think the reality is that we're going to be on a case-by-case basis, spending some more time thinking about this and proposing the best sort of solution for each each application as we deal with it. And similarly, when it comes to to drafting, I don't think that there's a, an easy thing that we can sort of magic bullet that we can that we can say here that will make all these problems go away. If you just draft your your application like this, there is a tension between all of these factors. You know, do you want to say things are positively not part of the invention? Do you want to be able to easily delete them? Do you want to make sure that we've got good basis for any amendments we want to make? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's a tough sell for for applicants as well, you know, for, for our clients to say to them, oh, well, good news. Looks like the EPO are willing to accept these claims. Bad news. What used to be a kind of formal procedure of maybe I've got to introduce a sentence now might involve a significant amount of work to jump through an extra hurdle, which doesn't receptively have any benefit to you. Um, certainly not in the in the short term, and and that benefit is kind of a a legal nuance that that is kind of interesting to lawyers, but of no practical use um, to ninety nine percent of of patentees, and that that's going to be tough. I do feel like it's kind of added a, an extra layer of work to know for no sort of perceptible benefit to the to the applicant. You know, it's sort of necessary, and we certainly at least need to explain it. I was talking to a colleague about this last week because the examiners are already starting to sort of get a bit more keen on this. And he said he'd done a quick quick search of his specification and, and uh, you know, they'd sort of objected to all of the, you know, X may be Y, X may be Z, X may be blah, blah, blah. The use of the word may in this sort of preferred or optional feature. Uh, he said he'd done a quick search on his, on his specification and found 800 instances of the word may being used which is you know it's, it's a tool that we use when we're drafting patents and you have to sort of think about each of them and that that in and of itself is, is a mammoth task and as i say just from a from a an applicant client's point of view no real perceptible benefit just, just sort of make work for lawyers which is really being sort of thrust upon us by the epo which is if you look at it from that angle it kind of feels unfortunate doesn't it yeah yeah and i think as well you know, because there is more work to do here, you're in a position where it's less likely that the examiner is going to do it for you. Often we would find that because in the EPO process, it's up to the examiner once they're mostly happy with the, the claims to propose a text that they're going to recommend for grant. In that text, they can make amendments. So often you would find that these things got sorted out that way if you just did nothing about them to help, you know, and left it till towards the end of the process. The examiner would add in whatever sentence he thought was the the right magic words to to get you over the line. You didn't have to think about it too much. But if the options are deleting stuff or you know writing such a prominent statement, I don't know that the examiners are going to be you know quite so cavalier about deleting stuff from your spec. They tend to not want to make what they would see as drastic amendments. I totally agree. We're walking towards this horrible sort of 
So it's going to be an awful metaphor, but it's sort of, you know, once you've won the war, you then have to start trying to win the peace, which could be even more difficult. But we'll just have to wait and see how that goes. Bobby and Andy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.